All right, continuing on with our Daniel series this morning. Daniel, how to live in times of judgment. We're going to be talking about pressure versus persecution. Pressure versus persecution. So turn with me, if you will, to Daniel, and we'll, you know, you'll just be there when I'm ready to go to any particular passage. But as the United States and Canada have become post-Christian nations, it breaks my heart to say that, and it's kind of hard to believe that Canada and the United States were founded upon Judeo-Christian values, founded upon uh, the, the, the principles of the Christian faith, and we have moved so far from that foundation that we are no longer considered Christian nations. We are, po we are considered post which means after, post-Christian nations. It's gone so far as past and current leaders in the U.S. and Canadian governments has gone so far as to say that we are no longer Christian, but actually our origins is in some other religion or our origins is in some other faith, which, which is rewriting history, which is basically a bald-faced lie. We have moved so far away from the foundations of the Judeo-Christian faith. And, and, and now Christians feel pressured. We feel pressured by society because society marches to the beat of a different drum. And we are expected to be good citizens and we're expected to fall in line with what society deems right and wrong. When did we lay aside the banner of the Christian faith? When did we lay aside the banner and the principles of Scripture and bow in cowardice and in submission to what society says is right and what society says is wrong. Who says they have the final say or even have the right to deem what is right and what is wrong? We have, I'm sure that there are some Christian uh, men and women that are in, in uh, leadership in our countries and in our nations. But for the most part, the majority of the people that occupy offices of leadership in our world have no connection to Christ. They may, they may say they're Christian. They may have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And they don't let their faith seep into society because we are salt and light, as I said in last week's message. And salt and light are agents of change. When light is shown, the cockroaches scatter. They love the darkness more than they love the light. Salt is a preserver and a preservation. And I'm not talking about shoving religion on our nations, but yet our morality undeniably comes from the foundation and the roots of Scripture, and that should guide the moral compass of society. But yet we have thrown that compass out the window, and we do what is right in our own eyes. We are living in a similar time as in the book of Judges where it says that men did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king over Israel. And men and women did what was right in their own eyes. If I go by my own druthers, my own feelings, my own flesh, my life is going to be way off course. I'm going to steer you off course. This is my roadmap. This is my compass. This is my guide. The word of God and none other. I don't care what our bylaws say. I don't care what this denomination says. I don't care what this religion says. Sola Scriptura. It's what the Word of God says that matters and what counts. And that should be guiding our personal lives as well as our lives in society. But if you don't fall in line and don't fall in step with what the world and society deems is right and good and acceptable and holy, you're going to be pressured. I mean, remember in school where you were pressured to wear certain clothes? I mean, uh, like in Canada, there was a time when Edwin jeans come out. Remember Edwin jeans? Everybody wanted a pair of Edwin jeans. You were cool if you wore Edwin jeans. You were part of the popular crowd if you wore Edwin jeans. No, you're just some poor, lowly, white trash nerd if you couldn't afford a pair of Edwin jeans. And you felt less than. You didn't feel a part of the crowd. You didn't feel a part of the group. All because of some material of clothing that you cover your nakedness with. How ridiculous is that? But that's all what peer pressure is about. You have to say and do certain things to be considered acceptable and cool in school. And you think, well, man, well, I've graduated. And we should be beyond that. But we're not as a society. 
Because television and radio, TV and commercials and movies tell you what's cool. Tell you what's right, tells you what's wrong, tells you how you're supposed to think, how you're supposed to feel, how you're supposed to act. And if you don't go along with what television and movies say, then you're not cool. Then you get labeled as such things as a bigot, a hate monger, intolerant, narrow-minded, old-fashioned, obsolete. Just because you don't fall in line and in step with what the world deems is okay. The moral compass and the moral meter has moved from 50 years ago. When I grew up, it was, it was, it was a criticism and, and it was uh, considered to being, being made fun of if somebody called you gay. But now people own that and they're proud to be called gay. Times have changed. I mean, the legitimacy and the acceptance of things such as common law marriage is no longer deemed a sin and shacking up is no longer considered wrong. When did that change? When did the word of God make an addendum that says, oh, well, that was back then. This is now. We're not under law. We're under grace. So it's okay. Jesus knows my heart. But yet we are, we are pressured into accepting these cultural and societal norms that fall outside of Scripture, outside of the Word of God, and we're expected to shut up and be quiet? Or we're expected to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and agree with it? When, when did the Word of God deem killing babies acceptable through abortion, and we end up calling it health care? But yet, if you were in a group of people who are considered pro-choice and you give an opinion other, different, other than theirs, oh, you, you don't, you, you're not for women's rights. You're for the enslavement of women. You're old-fashioned. You, you hate people. You're, you're, you, don't, you don't believe in science. When did the Word of God say that abortion is acceptable? Never! We are expected to accept and embrace the world's definition of what marriage is. Oh, it's no longer between one man and one woman. It could be between two women. It could be between two men. Or it could be between somebody who considers themselves a man and one of the other 33 different genders that are on the docket today. But the biblical definition of marriage is one man, one woman. This is what Satan wants to do. He wants to attack the foundations of our society and the foundation of our society was founded in Genesis with Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve not Eve and Ellen the definition of marriage is one man one woman that's it and then the thing that bewilders me is that even science is going along with that and say well if you feel like you're you know a demi boy or if you feel like you're one of these other 32 genders, well then that's okay how dare you, scientists? You're betraying your own trade and betraying your own religion because what is XX and what is XY? That's it. There is no XPDQ and XYZF. It's XX chromosome, XY chromosome. It's man, it's woman. That's it. You may have the rare anomaly, which is a birth defect, where somebody is born a hermaphrodite, where they have characteristics of both genders. But even then, one gender is predominant over the other, and that's usually the gender that they choose. But we're expected to accept in the fallen line, to accept the LBGTQP agenda. And it just keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. They said, you know what, we're, we're, you know, we'll, we'll, if you allow us to, to have, you know, uh, to be put on insurance, if you allow us to, you know, just to be recognized as a couple, we'll be pleased with that. We gave that to them and they said, no, we want more. We want to be married. We'll be happy with that, okay? We give them the marriage. No, 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 we're not happy with that. Now we have to be represented by a 25 percentile in TV and Hollywood in your commercials and TV shows. 
And you're seeing it in commercials. These jewelry commercials where one woman is proposing to another. These TV shows, some of which I love the franchises, but now I'm just, I've walked away from it because I'm tired of them pushing that agenda down my throat because I don't have to watch it. The more you watch it, the more normalized it will be. The more normalized it will be, you'll eventually accept it. I guarantee you will. Oh no, I believe in the Bible, but I just watch it because it's my favorite show and I'm not going to be swayed by that. No, uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. Did you grow up in a home where you were verbally abused by your parents? Where you were told that you were stupid? You were never going to amount to anything. You're not worth anything. They wish you were never bored. You're nothing but trouble. How do, how's your self-esteem today? How did you grow up? You have to fight against that because you've been told it so much. You believe it yourself. And you watch things so much. You will believe what is on TV even though you've been raised and taught against it through the scripture. We have to be separate and separate ourselves from this world. He didn't say in the scriptures that we're to be a peculiar people for nothing. And I'm not saying that we have to dance around and act crazy and, you know, dress like we're back from the, you know, back in the Arabian days or anything like that. But people should know that you're a Christian, not because you say it, not because you wear a cross, not because you carry a Bible, but because of how you act, how you carry yourself. How you defend the defenseless. How you stand up for right and wrong no matter of getting made fun of. No matter what the cost may be. No matter of what you get called. Nobody has permission to define who I am. No one has to permission to define what I am. You want to call me a bigot? Fine. You live with that. I, I, I am not what you say I am. Because I know who I am. And I know who I'm related with. I know who I'm aligned with. I know what I believe and why I believe it. So call me whatever you want. Call me old-fashioned. Call me obsolete. Call me stubborn. Call me intolerant. I will wear those, uh, th those names as badges of courage. And I will take them as compliments. Because you're not going to change my heart. And you are not going to change my mind. Because God has the final say in my heart, in my life, in my mind. Bottom line. And yet society, we're being pushed, and we are being pushed, and we are being pushed to accept certain things. Even in, it's, it's even bled into Christianity. How so, pastor? Well, hell and Satan no longer exist. They're just symbols and archetypes. And even people within our own denomination are preaching behind pulpits that hell is not forever. Oh, it's bad. It's a bad place, but you'll just burn up and you just cease to exist anymore. That is not what the first century apostles believed. That is not what is written in scripture. And whoever preaches that behind the pulpit, in my opinion, is a heretic. They're leading people the wrong way. I'm not going to change my opinion on scripture just because it's unsavory in this society to think that somebody can spend an eternity in hell. That should be a cry and a klaxon call and a wake-up call to us to get serious about our faith and keep as many people from going there as possible. What used to be sinful and shameful, what used to be sinful and shameful is now celebrated. It's celebrated. Fornication. Living together and having sex outside of marriage is normal and accepted now. Nobody says boo about it. A child born out of wedlock used to be called a bastard. It used to be a very shameful, shameful thing. But no, it's celebrated. I'm not saying that we shouldn't help unwed mothers. Yes, absolutely we should help unwed mothers. But is it really necessary to throw a party for them? And to celebrate the fact that they got, that they, 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 they got pregnant out of wedlock? It's not to shame them, but it's to show them, look, we understand you made a mistake. We're not condemning you for that, but we can't at the same time celebrate the fact that you stepped outside of God's parameters of what is right and what is wrong. I'm not saying that somebody can't be forgiven of those things. They absolutely can. But we've got to stop accepting them as normal. And we've got to stop being afraid of offending somebody because of these things. 
Yes, we get tired. Yeah, that's, that's the whole point of the pressure, is to pressure you so much that you get tired and say, oh, what's the point? What's the use? This is the way the world's going to be anyway, and this is just the way prophecy is going to fulfill itself, so I might as well shut up. But what does the scripture say? Do not be weary in doing right, because you will reap if you faint not. I know this is hard to hear, but preachers have been silent behind the pulpit for too long about these issues. And it's time we bring them up again, not to hurt people, not to shame people, not to tear them down, but to say, look, there is a right and there is a wrong. And if you're doing wrong, that we still love you. But, the, but you need to repent. You need to change and do what is right. We can no longer accept these things. We applaud someone who is stunning and brave and comes out of the closet and announces that they're gay or transitioning to another gender. The celebration of sin has replaced the confession of sin. Confession is the pathway to freedom. I have a close group of inner circle friends that I trust with my life. And if I'm sinning or I'm struggling with something, I will confess it to them. Why? Because it's their business? No, because I want to be accountable. And I know once I bring that confession out, that sin no longer has a grip or power or control over me. It loses its power when that sin is brought into the light and brought out into the open. The power of it diminishes, and I don't have to struggle with that sin or that temptation like I used to. And I've got a group of brothers and sisters that will see me through that. But the celebration of sin has replaced the confession of sin. Case in point, the gay pride parades... Why are children there looking at people half-naked in leather and whips and chains and spikes and some of them crawling on the ground like a dog and people wearing sex toys on their bodies and gyrating around? When has that become family-friendly? When has that become acceptable? Sodom and Gomorrah is celebrated now. The celebration of sin has replaced the confession of sin. And if you do not accept the things as well as agree with them and encourage them, then you are deemed judgmental, condemning, a hate monger, intolerant, bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, and old-fashioned. Well, pastor, this is a great way of you emptying the church out. Nobody's going to want to come if you're going to be preaching like that. I don't care. It's not about what I say. It's about what God's word says. And for way too long behind the pulpits of the United States and Canada, pastors have shut up about these controversial. They're not controversial issues in my mind. There is black. There is white. There is a line of demarcation. I can still love you and disagree with you. You can still be in the depths of depravity of sin, and I can still love you without condemning you because you're condemned already. Isn't that what Christ did? He didn't applaud the prostitute. He didn't applaud the tax collector. He didn't applaud the murderer, but he still loved them, and they invited him to their houses for dinner. Because he could still love them and yet still disagree with them. But today, disagreeance is seen as hate. You can't fall into that category. You can't fall into that and be a hardcore believer. What God calls deprave in our society, society deems diversity. I'm all about diversity. I would love to see every ethnicity represented here in our church. I would love to see our seats filled with, with, with French and English and natives and, 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 and Italian and Japanese and just all the different ethnicities. I would love to see people of all the different socioeconomic statuses, impoverished, low income, middle income, upper income, doesn't matter. That's the diversity that we need. Not this diversity that I'm some sort of gender that you've never even heard of. 
Or some diversity, it's like, oh, I believe in this way far out thing, the flying spaghetti monster. You think I just pulled that out of my head? No, that's a real thing. Look it up. There's people that believe in a, a giant flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> yeah, it's laughable. What God calls depraved, our society calls diversity. I'm all for loving the sinner, but hating the sin that has them in bondage and is destroying their life. David Arthur, he was abused as a child, sexually abused. He gave his body to countless men. He came out as gay and was on his way to chant transitioning into the opposite sex. He ended up getting AIDS and was on his deathbed and he repented and God healed him. And now you know what, what he calls what he used to be in? He says people call it an alternative lifestyle. They call it the gay lifestyle. It's not a lifestyle, it's a death style. For the wages, the price, the, 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 the results of sin is death. Sin does not bring life, sin brings death. How can we celebrate what brings death? For the wages of sin is death, but, but, but there is hope, but there's an eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to hate what has my fellow man in bondage. I hate the LBGDQ agenda and lifestyle. I don't hate them. I hate the, the death style because it's killing them physically, mentally, and spiritually. I hate drugs, but I love the drug addict. I hate prostitution and child trafficking, but I love the victims and those who are caught up in it. The world's definition of morality, right and wrong, changes. But God is our creator. And as creator, therefore, he has the right to deem and to dictate the standard of right and wrong. Malachi 3.6, he says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord and I do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the word of God stands forever. This right here, this Bible, this word of God is the only truth that you can rely on, stand on, and depend on. Never be turned away from or swayed from. Never be led astray by or duped by. It's the truth. It's the way. It's the life. Aaron and Melissa Klein, former owners of an Oregon bakery, dared to stand by their convictions by refusing to bake a wedding cake for a lesbian couple. As a result, they were fined and forced to close their bake shop. Aaron is now a garbage collector, and Melissa takes as many odd jobs as she can to help make ends meet and to support their children and to pay the bills. Would you be willing to lose your job to speak and proclaim and stand for the truth? Would you be willing? Or just, oh, well, I can just be quiet and God knows my heart. I know I don't really mean this, but I'll just do it anyway because I don't want any trouble. He said, you will have tribulation in this world. In this world, you will be hated. But those who endure to the end shall be saved. Kelvin Cochran. He was the former Atlanta fire chief, and he was fired by the mayor because, specifically for, his Christian beliefs. What Christians in the West experience pales in comparison to what our brothers and sisters experience in China, North Korea, and the Middle East. What Christians in the West experience is pressure. And I would say we've graduated from pressure to a very soft form of persecution but it's not full-fledged persecution as our brothers and sisters of the first century as our brothers and sisters in North Korea in China in Saudi Arabia in Muslim and in communist countries pressure is feeling the push of culture to stray from our faith persecution is feeling the pain of choices made as we stand for the faith 
And that has been quoted by David and Jason Benham. Let me read that again. Pressure is feeling the push of culture to stray from our faith. And persecution is feeling the pain of choices made as we stand for our faith. Are you willing to lose everything? Not just reputation. Maybe your, maybe your house. Maybe your finances. If need be, if called upon, if deemed necessary, are you willing to lose these things for Jesus Christ? Did Jesus Christ have a nice home? Have all the luxury items, had the latest tech and gadgets of the day? Had desire everything? He said, no. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Paul the Apostle, next in line to be on the prestigious Jewish Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land, studying under the feet of the great Rabbi Gamaliel, is still held in high esteem and recognition by Jewish people today. You know what he said about all these degrees and letters behind his name and accolades and what he could have been? He says, I consider it as dung. That's a very nice way of saying manure. I consider it as crap. I consider it as feces compared to what I have in Christ. And what did he have to brag about? He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was beat. He was imprisoned. He was chained in a dungeon. He was under a house arrest numerous times. But it didn't matter. He spoke what was right. He stood for what was right, no matter what the cost. And we see, we see the pressure from the very first chapter of Daniel. We see the pressure. And starting at verse 5 of chapter 1, the king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank, the wine which was unkosher and the food which was unclean. They were to be trained, in other words, indoctrinated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judahites was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave them, and these were pagan names, Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. And Daniel determined, didn't matter the pressure. It didn't matter the consequences. It didn't matter what Babylon said was true. It didn't matter what Babylon said was right. It didn't matter what Babylon said was moral. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank, so he asked permission. I know things have changed. I know we're in captivity because of our sin. I get it. I'm willing to work with you here if you can work with me. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. I mean, maybe the chief eunuch, it doesn't say, but maybe the chief eunuch says, Daniel, what's your beef, man? What, why, why are you bucking against the sin? All the other Judahites who came with you, look, they're going along just fine. They don't have a problem with it. Why you and your three friends? You're the minority here. Step in line. This is not Israel anymore. But no, Daniel wouldn't budge. And because of this, verse 9, God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the others of the young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants as based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and wine and they, that they were drinking and gave them vegetables. This fortified them to stand against persecution. This, this, this was a test from chapter 1. It was a test. And it was pressure. And they passed with flying colors. Test 1. Pressure. What's the big deal? Just eat a ham sandwich and be happy. What's the big deal? 
drink a little of this unkosher wine and just shut up. It'll be all right. But no, they stood against that pressure. Pressure came again in Daniel chapter 3, starting with verse 4. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of, and then they list all these different kind of musical instruments, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Even Nebuchadnezzar, there was a god named Nabu. That's where Nebuchadnezzar got his name. But whosoever does not fall in worship will immediately be thrown into the furnace blazing with fire. Therefore, when all the people heard, and all these musical instruments, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I'm not going to be toast. I'm going to worship this thing. Yeah. Some Chaldeans took the occasion to come forward maliciously to accuse the Jews. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of, of all these instruments are to fall down and worship the gold statue. However, whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the furnace blazing with fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon. Look, they're supposed to set the example, King Nebuchadnezzar. They're supposed to obey every single word that comes out of your mouth as if it was coming from a god. You have put them in managerial positions, high authority within Babylonian provinces. They are to toe the line of Babylon. They are to be examples to those that are below them. But yet, look what they do to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Look, just look. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men have ignored you. They've slapped you and spit in your face as if what your word says doesn't mean diddly squat. What do you think of that, Nebi? These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. That was the pressure. That was the pressure. Would you buckle under such pressure, or would you consider, ah, my life's not worth anything? I'm going to a better place anyhow. If this is the way I'm going to go out, I'm going to go in a blaze of glory. That was the pressure, and here comes the persecution. The persecution came at verse 13. Then in a furious rage. How many times have you been intimidated and manipulated just because somebody's mad at you? How many times have you backed down from your opinion just because somebody is mad at you? I don't want anybody to be mad at me. I don't want anybody to hate me. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar asked them. <clears throat> I'm sure he was really trying to control himself here. Shadrach? Meshach and Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, now, if you're ready, basically I'm going to give you one more chance. You don't deserve a second chance, but I'm going to give you one more chance. How many, how many times have you been pressured? Oh yeah, how dare you say that? Are you sure that's your final answer? Are you sure that's your opinion? I'm going to give you time to rethink that. Are you sure that's the hill you want to die on? Are you sure you want to say that? Because there's consequences in saying that. I won't be your friend no more. I won't help you no more. You won't have a job anymore. Is it true that you do not serve my gods and worship the gold statue I've set up now? If you're ready, when you hear the sound of all this music, fall down and worship the statue I've made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Is there any God greater than, than myself, greater than Nabu, who I'm named after, greater than whatever God you want to name? But no, the persecution is on heavy and hot for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they do not budge. They do not flinch. They do not quiver. They do not back down. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. 
They're basically saying, uh, didn't you see us standing here and not bowing down? We're not changing our minds just because you're mad, just because you threaten us. We made our stance out there in the field when everybody saw us standing out like a sore thumb. Verse 17, if the God, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. He's powerful. He has the ability. And I love this. My favorite part of the verse. He says, but even if he doesn't rescue us, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So I'm not going to read the rest of the verses. We all know the story. They're thrown into the fire. The people that are throwing them die because the heat is so intense, but yet they're spared. They don't even, not, not, they're not, hair is not singed, their clothes is not burned, and lo and behold, there's a fourth man in the fire with them, and that's none other than the pre-incarnate Yeshua Messiah, the Jesus Christ, who says it looks like one of the sons of, a go of God. Looks like a divine being in that fire. Didn't we not throw three? Yeah, king, we threw three. How come there's four? They stood up under pressure, and they survived persecution. Pressure hits hard and heavy for Daniel in chapter 6. Pressure, pressure, starting with verse 7. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps and advisors and governors, had agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days and an entire month, anyone who petitions any god, or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict, sign the document so that it will be as the law of the Medes and the Persians, which is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed it. There was the immediate pressure. And here comes the persecution in verse 13. Because we know that Daniel was caught red-handed in plain sight and plain view of everybody because he opened his window towards the east, towards Jerusalem, knelt down and prayed to the God of Israel. In verse 13, then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you. You're losing face, O king. He's ignored the edict that you signed. For he prays three times a day. And as soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He had set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. But there's no loopholes in the laws of the Medes or the Persians. No loopholes. Verse 15. These men went together to the king and said, You know, your majesty, that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, that there's no edict or ordinance the king establishes that can be changed. So the king gave orders. I might say reluctantly, because he loved Daniel. They brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. Do you ever think and, and, and contemplate how easy it would have been for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to buckle under pressure and just to be quiet, to shut up? Because as one of our congregants says, oh, we're just tired. We're just tired. Would have been a totally different story that we'd be reading here. If you buckle and cave under pressure, you won't stand a chance under persecution. It starts with the little things that you believe. That you know what, I know you have your opinion. We'll just have to agree to disagree agreeably. But I think abortion is wrong. I don't agree with the LBGTQ agenda. I don't agree with living together and shacking up and having sex outside of marriage. I don't agree with all these things. And you're going to get called every single name in the book. How dare you? Holier than thou, self-righteous. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than everybody else. Blah, 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 blah. I'm mad at you. I don't, I've lost respect for you. I'm not going to be your friend no more. You can no longer hang out with me or have coffee with me. If you don't stand under those conditions, you will not survive persecution when it comes. You must determine ahead of time that you will stand firm. Can you, can you, just, can you just get in the car? You know, you know how to drive. You know how to steer right. You know how to steer left. You know how to do all that. But let's say you just get in the car and you've never had your license before. 
Will you be able to parallel park? No, most likely not. Why? You have to practice. You have to practice. Practice makes perfect. You have to create that muscle memory. You have to visualize that course of that parallel parking in your head. You have to practice it many times before you get it down. And when you finally come into a situation, you're in downtown Toronto or wherever, and you're like, oh, I got to find a place to park. And the only place is by a meter on the side of the road. You have to initiate that, that parallel parking. Well, no, I don't, because now they have park assist. See how technology has made us lazy people? I don't like park assist. I don't like the rear view camera. What big deal is it for me to turn my head? I get, you get lazy. They turn you into lazy drivers. But my point is that you have to know ahead of time how to parallel park if you're going to parallel park. You're going to have to practice and determine within your soul, within your heart ahead of time, that if you, somebody puts a gun to your head and says, renounce Christ or else, you'll know what to do. You'll say, well, glory, send me on home. Woo! Otherwise, you'll be, oh, no, please. Oh, please don't kill me. I have, I have children. I have grandchildren. Please don't kill me. You got to determine ahead of time to stand firm. You must choose where you draw the line in the sand and which hill you choose to die on. Mark 13, 13. You will be hated by everyone. Because of me, Messiah said, but those who endure to the end shall be saved. And in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. What did he tell them? Read the chapter. It's all about, you know, read all the stuff ahead. It's about persecution. It's about hard times. It's about not having an easy life. He says, I've told you these things. Why? So that in me, you might have peace. There might come a chance, though, that you might have suffering in this world. There's, there might be a little eensy-beensy tiny chance. Why are you not rebuking me right now? That is not what the scripture says. It says you will have suffering in this world. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You will have suffering in this world. But what does he say? Be courageous. Why? Because I have already conquered the world. What you're experiencing here is petty little skirmishes and petty little battles. I've already won the war. Be courageous and don't worry about it. I've told you ahead of time it's going to get hard. I told you ahead of time it's going to get rough. But endure to the end. Because that is your salvation. And in Matthew 10... 16, Jesus says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Sheep look like targets, right? Oh, look at that. It's a nice little Christian. They love everybody. They're pacifistic. They look innocent. But no, I serve the one. I serve the lion from the tribe of Judah. I serve Jesus Christ, who is a roaring lion. He is the lion, not the counterfeit lion that roams the earth seeking whom he may devour, but the lion. And guess what? If the Lord Jesus is a lion, I'm a part of his pride. That means I'm a lion too. But he says, look, I'm sending you out like. You're going to look like sheep in the midst of wolves, but therefore be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts. They handed uh, Aaron and Melissa Klein over to the local courts, didn't they? When they went and baked a cake. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. How many times was the Apostle Paul beat like that? You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. Okay, he didn't. Okay, I'm quoting Bob Marley there. But it says, but when they hand you over, don't worry about how you are to speak. For you will be given what to say at that hour. Because it isn't you that's speaking, but the spirit of the father speaking through you. And it goes on to say, and this is heartbreaking, and we're seeing it now in our churches. We're seeing it now in our neighborhoods and society. 
Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. Well, look at that self-righteous, holy, rolling Christian thinks he's better than everybody else because he holds to a higher moral standard than me. How dare him think him better than me? How dare he put his morality above mine? I'm just as good as he is. I give to this charity and I give to that charity and blah, 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 blah. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. Who are the bad guys in TVs and movies? It's the crooked preacher. It's the crooked priest. It's the Christian who's gone loony in the head that needs to be put in a straitjacket. Have you noticed that in television shows and movies lately? It's the Christian that ends up being the bad guy. It says, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end shall be saved. I'm putting my feet here and I'm not moving. The line is right here and it will not be crossed. Do what you will, do what you may. You're not going to change my mind, even if you have to kill me. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For I tell you, for truly I tell you, that you will not have gone throughout the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Have you ever thought maybe that the Lord might just bring persecution upon us because we're lazy, because we're disobedient, because we're complacent, because we're apathetic, because we have not fulfilled the Great Commission, and the only way to get us off our butts and to get moving and to tell people about Him is persecution? It happened in the first century. That is how the gospel thrived in the first century is when believers were persecuted. We're too comfortable, folks. We're too comfortable. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone throughout the whole towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. If it is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master, if they called the head of the house Beelzebub, didn't they call Jesus Satan? They literally called Jesus Satan. Beelzebub is another word for Satan. Oh, the only way he can cast out demons is obvious. You know, number one, he's a bastard. We don't really know his lineage. He goes against the pharisaical customs and traditions and ways, so obviously he can't be righteous and holy. The only way he could possibly cast out demons is if he's in league with the devil. If they call the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of the household of faith? How much more you? I've been called a lot of bad things because of my faith. And I know it's not going to stop, and I know it's going to continue. It's going to happen to you if you stand out and stand up for what you believe. It's going to happen. But he said, be courageous because I've already won the battle. I've already won the war. These are just petty skirmishes. Hold fast. Stand firm. And watch me deliver you. If he wants to take you out that way, glory to God, you get home quicker than you thought. But if not, he's going to deliver you in such a miraculous way like he did Daniel and his friends that people are going to get saved. People are going to get converted. People are going to look differently about you and about your faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, pressure versus persecution. We're being pressured, and I dare say we've graduated to a soft form of persecution in some cases. But Father, if our nations do not repent, if our nations wholeheartedly do not return to you, if our churches stop placating and catering to the morality of this world and start preaching and teaching the truth behind the pulpits, unafraid, unashamed, unapologetically, we may find ourselves in a very hard spot and situation where we're going to have to stand for our faith or, or, or be persecuted. So I pray, Father, you would stoke a fire within each and everyone's heart, within each and everyone's belly, that they will determine here and now that they will stand for you, stand for your word, no matter what, what it costs them personally, physically, mentally, or spiritually. That they will trust you and know that life is in you. It's not in sports. It's not in TV. It's not in technology. It's not in your career. Our life is in you. We live, move, and have our breath and being through you. Your words are the only words of life. 
You are you and your word, Lord, are the only standard that we're to go by, and it's going to guide us all throughout our life, no matter where we go or how we navigate. We've played, we know how to play church. We've played church for years. It's time, Lord, that we be the church. Teach us, O oh God. Mercifully teach us to be the church. Which is not a building, which is not a denomination, which is not a shingle outside of a door. But we are your ambassadors. We are your body. We are your representatives. I pray that everybody asks within their heart and their mind today, are they being the representative they should be of Christ? Can they truly call themselves a Christian? Can they truly call themselves Christ-like? And I pray you would give us the boldness. You've told us what lies ahead if things don't change. You told us that this was going to happen. And it's happening all over the world except for right here right now. So if you told us, Lord, may we be prepared so that we don't be found wanting or lacking. Lord, I don't want to compromise on your standards and on your word one iota. You burden me, and sometimes I don't even want to preach messages like these. I, I'm t I don't even want to be in the book of Daniel. I, I, I don't even want to preach these messages sometimes. But Lord, I know that if I don't, I'm going to have a greater punishment from you because you have led me to preach these messages to equip and prepare the saints in the church for what may possibly that lies ahead if we do not repent as a body of believers, Lord. Because time is short. We already read the end of the book. We know how bad things are going to get. And I pray that none of us have this escapism mentality because the rapture may not happen when you think it does. And you have to be ready. We have to be ready like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If necessity calls upon it, and we live in times such as that. I want to prepare the flock to be these, these, these lions. They may look like sheep, but they're lions. I want to raise up a bunch of lions, a pride of lions that may to the rest of the world look like sheep. Because that's what it's going to take, oh Lord. We need your help and we cannot do this without you, oh God. Please be merciful to us. Please have patience with us. Please teach us and instruct us. Please convict us to the point to where we break and repent. Because you can work with a broken vessel. You can work with crackpots. Lord, may we be moldable like clay. You can make us into whatever you want us to be. We love you and we praise you and we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.